Most of you were already there, I think, in Psalm 119. Are you not? Verse 65 through 72. We are going to be looking at this uh, song, this stanza by way of overview this morning. And we're going to be asking one very important question and letting the scriptures answer it. And the question is, is God good? If you had to write a doctrinal statement, would you include the goodness of God as a primary element of that statement? Or would you skirt that statement because of what you know about what's happening in the world? Is God good? I would say he'd better be for our sakes. I think he'd better be for his own sake. What would it mean to us if God's goodness were unreliable? How would you manage that reality? If you didn't know whether or not when you got up this morning God was in a good mood or not, what would you say about God if that were the case? What are we supposed to think about questions that agnostics and atheists have regarding the goodness of God? If God is good, they ask, why do bad things happen? If God is good and omnipotent, they continue, why doesn't he do something about the suffering of innocent people, even of innocent animals? The logic goes like this, either he is not good or he is not able to do anything about it. Either way, we have a problem. Is there argument? Even Jewish Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote a bestseller called When Bad Things Happen to Good People, concluded that God is good, but he is unable to do anything about the bad things that happen. And so he pleaded with his readers to forgive God for that inability. And that's coming from the religious sector. What's the rest of the world think about our problems as a race? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, has a different take on suffering and God's role in, in that suffering. He has some very good thoughts on the matter, and I would encourage you to take time to read his thoughts in his book, The Problem of Pain. But I want to continue with this question of God's goodness and ask how you might assess God's goodness in your own life. Do you determine whether or not God is good by whether or not you are suffering currently? Is the, is the ultimate good the absence of suffering in your life? So if you're not suffering, God's good. And the moment you begin to suffer or your friends or family begin to suffer, then that becomes a legitimate question, God's goodness. If we've learned anything from our study in the book of James, it's that suffering is a purposeful part of life, especially for Christians, right? But for many atheists and agnostics, the issue isn't really personal suffering, although it's very difficult to separate your pain from your view of God. And if you've been in some significant pain, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, their primary concern, they say, is the suffering of the innocent, not so much their own. But besides the fact that there are no innocent, biblically speaking, because of our sin nature, there are other ways to think about the problem of suffering that we all see. Is it possible that God values reconciliation, restoration, salvation more than he values painlessness? There's another idea here that I want to bounce off of you. There are some obvious categories of suffering that we particularly don't like. 
right? And we could name them, but I'll just list them for you. Abused children, abortion, physical brutality, starving people, etc. Are particular areas of suffering that, that cause us grief and worry, concern. What do we do about it? God could stop all the suffering, right, if he were good and all-powerful. So since we believe both of those things, why doesn't it happen? Why does suffering continue? If God could forcibly stop everyone from harming others, suffering would cease. Stop everyone from lying, everyone from stealing, everyone from adultery, etc., but those who seem to shout the loudest about the problem of suffering are usually those who are not interested in doing their part in keeping others from suffering. They rarely want to talk about how their life may lead to the suffering of innocent people. They're quick to say, I want all the suffering to stop, but are okay with the ongoing suffering of a child because of their adultery with her mother and the broken family that's left in the wake. I want all the suffering to stop, but I still want to exercise my freedom to lie, steal, and enjoy anything immoral. You can't have it both ways. Critic? Well, <clears throat> would it help to know, for those of you in this room at least, that God is opposed to suffering in general terms? It helps me I don't know if it helps you, but it helps me that God is actually opposed to this thing that's so common in our day. Do you know what the Ten Commandments are about? At least the last six of those ten. Those commandments are given to alleviate suffering. If we follow those commandments, human suffering diminishes significantly. If you'll just obey the commandments. So, since those Ten Commandments are a reflection of God's nature, God is essentially opposed to human suffering. Hence the Ten Commandments. The only way for God to eliminate all suffering would be to create a forced utopia. You wouldn't be allowed to do the most basic infraction. You wouldn't be allowed to think the smallest wrong thought. God could have created emotionless robots that would simply do whatever has been programmed by God to do. Suffering and salvation would be not known to us. Our freedom to sin establishes the fact that we are culpable before God and need a Savior. God's plan includes sin and pain and restoration as a means to exalt His goodness and glory and produce the most ultimate joy possible. Suffering, unfortunately, is a part of human experience, but as much as God cannot be responsible for evil, He is able and does use it for His purposes. The verses under consideration today, the Teth stanza, this is the Teth stanza of Psalm 119, verses 65 through 72, assumes and somewhat defends the goodness of God by observing who God is and what He's done. So the author here has as we know, because we've read up to this point, has had his share of suffering. In verses 67 and 71, you'll notice that he introduces a new word to us in this chapter, at least in this chapter. The word affliction. 
It's the first time it comes up. And yet he's talked about his affliction multiple times in different language, but multiple times throughout this particular chapter. So the idea of affliction stands out to us in this stanza, but the focal point of this stanza I need to emphasize is not affliction, but God's goodness in affliction. That's what I want you to focus on. The word good, in fact, is used five times in the original language in the following verses, 65, 66, 68, 71, and 72. When you get to word, uh, verse 72, you don't see the word good in the English language, but in the original it was, in fact, the word good. So I want you to remember something important here, and I've, I've already mentioned to you this in the past, but I want to remind you of this important detail in Psalm 119. Each stanza is named after a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Did you remember that? And so there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. How many stanzas are there in the, in the chapter? 22. And they are related. So each stanza is titled by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each sentence in that stanza begins with that Hebrew letter. So every verse, I mean every, yeah, every verse, every sentence in the Aleph stanza begins with the letter Aleph. All the way through to the tenth stanza here in verse 65, every sentence in this stanza begins with the letter Tet, which makes it very convenient to talk about God's goodness because the word in Hebrew for God's goodness or goodness in general is the word that begins with Tet. And so five times he begins the sentence with good. All right? So the focal point here, the emphasis here is the goodness of God in this chapter, in this stanza rather. Today I want to introduce this stanza to you by briefly looking at each verse that refers to the goodness of God. And I emphasize introduce because as you know we're going to come back to this stanza and, and dissect it a little bit more deeply than simply this overview that I'm going to give you today. So today, if nothing else, I want you to see from this stanza five evidences of God's goodness. Okay? Five things that this author uses to prove the goodness of God. In case you were wondering. Now, I need to say this also. I'm not going to go in the order that the author gives them. I'm going to give them to you in the order that makes logical sense to me. Um, and I hope you'll follow. All right? The first is this, found in verses 67 and 71. God's discipline is purposeful. His discipline is purposeful. That in itself demonstrates the goodness of God. Aren't you happy that any affliction that comes your way, any discipline that comes your way has a point? What if, that were, what if you were not convinced of that? You would doubt God's goodness, <laughs> which is why many people do. They don't think that what they're going through has any significance, any point, and so they doubt, they doubt the person from whom it came. But here, the author is saying God's discipline is purposeful. Look at verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. There are many reasons that we might suffer through some affliction, but this stanza focuses on the corrective value of affliction. Have you ever been, have you experienced the corrective value of affliction? You, if you've ever gotten a ticket, 
you have experienced the corrective value of affliction. You go too fast, a police pulls you over, gives you a ticket, you, you learn, you benefit from that. And if not later, but immediately you begin to drive slower, don't you? You know, you're all of a sudden on alert and, you know, you, your odometer's a little bit lower, slower, slowing down. It's the corrective value of affliction. Uh, this, this verse doesn't imply that the author fell into some gross sin and God had to beat it out of him. That's not what's being said. The going astray that we read in verse 67 re refers to more of an ignorant drift away from God. It, it could have happened because of apathy or, or spiritual lethargy or fatigue or something else. But this author fell asleep in the boat and woke up and was a mile away from the dock. And so, God's word corrected him and brought him back to port. What verse 67 is saying is that before God brought affliction into his life, this man trusted his own judgment, trusted his own wisdom. I'm okay, I got this kind of attitude. I can handle this. When he found himself in a tight place, it caused him to realize his insight was in fact lacking and that he actually needed to seek the Lord once again in his word. He went back to the word to get the wisdom necessary to navigate life and its troubles. That's what's being talked about here in verse 67. And then we go down to verse 71 and we see that God's used affliction to help the author better understand his word. Look at verse 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn or understand your statutes. Now you, you might think that verse 67 and, and 71 are flipped in the wrong direction thinking it would be better to understand God's word before it works in your life. But it seems that the author intent, intentionally structured the verses in the order he did to show how God uses difficult trials added with scripture to teach us to trust and depend on him. So it is in perfect logical order in his mind. Martin Luther understood it this way also, this particular verse. Did Martin Luther understand scripture? Generally, yes, would be the answer. He had a doctorate in theology. He uh, was a teacher of theology at a seminary in Germany. The guy knew scripture. Long into his, his teaching career, he said the following. I never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. I have always found it to be one of my best schoolmasters. So for Martin Luther, affliction was used by God to teach him the Word of God, to help him understand the Word of God. Even though he knew it intellectually, his experience of affliction helped him understand the point. Luther knew God's Word, but he came to understand it more deeply when he was in the rough water. It is in the difficulties and trials of life where you learn to seek the peace that passes all understanding, right? I mean, you don't need the peace that passes all understanding if there's no scary things happening. Who needs peace if everything is cool? But it's when you get into those tight spots that peace makes a difference. It's in the darkest hours when you learn to appreciate being a child of the light, right? It's in those dark and difficult times where you're drawn to the light of the glory of Jesus Christ like no other time. Jesus becomes important and valuable and beautiful to you in darkness. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields its peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When you're going through the deep times, that's when you begin to understand God's word as God intends it. So the first evidence we see of the goodness of God in this stanza is that affliction that we experience is purposeful. God has a point to it. You're not just going through it meaninglessly. Secondly, in verse 68, we see that his character controls his actions. Verse 68, his character controls his actions. He says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Do you ever wonder why people do certain things? Do you ever wonder why you do certain things? Our character controls each of us. Who you are plays out in what you do. The reason you do what you do is because who you are. The reason you respond, the reason you say, the reason you think, how you do is this is your character. So your actions really flow out of who you are, your character. Now, do you know why we can have confidence in the middle of any trial or difficulty that we're in? Do you know why the Apostle Paul could say rejoice, and again I say rejoice? It's because Paul knew the character of God. Paul knew that whatever took place in his life, whatever takes place in our lives, is a result of a good God doing something, even if for a time it's painful. So the goodness of God is seen even here. His character controls his actions. Whatever his actions may be, we can trust his character. And we can trust the actions because of who we know God is. I'm convinced that God even uses our sin to bring about godly sorrow. That leads to deeper repentance and an attitude of utter dependence on God. Have you ever noticed that? When you come to your senses after being caught in sin... You, you, you kind of develop a, a sense of, of humility and, and reverence and concern and pursue God like you have not before the sin. God uses your sin to draw you to himself, as counterintuitive as that sounds. God is good, and hence everything he does is good. Now, I have to acknowledge, as I did earlier, that there are some very difficult circumstances around the world that are godless and bring questions about God's purposes and plans to mind. I acknowledge that. And I don't think there's anybody that has squeaky clean explanation for all that takes place in the world. But there is nowhere else to go. Like when Peter asked, do you believe, you know, do you want to leave too? Remember what Peter's response was? Where are we going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? And we, even though we have questions about God and, and yet we believe, who else are you going to turn to? Rabbi Kushner? Are you going to, are you going to listen to that explanation of suffering? Or do you want to hear from the word of God that affirms his goodness? I've chosen this place to stand. God is good, and everything he does is good. Only God can forgive sins. Only the Holy Spirit can restore the soul. 
Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Only God can redeem our suffering. Friends, aren't you glad that God's actions are controlled by his goodness? I am so thankful. Next we see the third evidence in verse 65. His actions match his promises. So the second evidence was that his character controls his actions. Who God is controls what he does. And now this third one is what he does is simply matched by his promises, by what he's already said. There are no surprises, in other words. This concept in verse 65 really is the guiding thought of the whole stanza. You have dealt well with your servant, Lord, according to your word. How has he dealt with you? Just like he said he would, according to his word. We shouldn't be surprised by what we're going through, whether good or difficult. Why? Because God has said that what, that's what would happen. He's revealed that to us in his word. He said he loves us with an everlasting love. We've heard some of these things this morning. He says that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He says he is merciful and slow to anger. He says he sends us new encouragement every morning. He says he will never leave us or forsake us. He said he guides us. He said he would come back for us someday. He said he would make a home for us to live with him forever. So this is the God who reveals himself to us in Scripture. God's actions match his promises. There's nothing you're going through that is new territory. One way that you can benefit from this line of thinking is to read through the Bible and mark all the promises of God to you and to me. You ever done that? It's a good exercise. Maybe something to do in your family worship time. As you read, keep a log of the promises of God to you and to your family. Or with your spouse, do this. Or even with yourself. Another helpful uh, resource is R.C. Sproul's book, The Promises of God. Excellent help in this particular area. So the author here of, of this stanza is giving evidence to the goodness of God. You may have questions about God's goodness for different reasons in your life. Maybe you've gone through some horrific things. You may have legitimate questions about the, God, the goodness of God in your life and the goodness of God in general. Hence, the inclusion of this stanza in Psalm 119. Those are legitimate questions, and those questions need answers. And this is the Holy Spirit of God answering them for you here in this stanza. The fourth evidence that God is good in case you're wondering and questioning that, is found in verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. You know, discernment in the life of a Christian is of utmost importance. There's a lot of talk about discernment these days um, from different um, Christian authors and different sermons that are preached. Yet it seems that the discerning Christian is not all that common. It seems, in fact, there are very few discerning Christians around. I think that godly discernment grows with faithful, long-term love and service to God. It also comes from having your mind washed with the Word of God, which is what 
The point is in verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, and I believe in your commandments. This is where it's coming from, this good judgment, this knowledge. One of the least reliable ways to approach life is to trust your own conscience or trust your own heart. Have you ever heard that? Oh, just trust your heart on this one. That is some of the worst advice you'll ever get. What does the book of Jeremiah tell us about the condition of our heart? It's deceitful, right? Wicked. Oh, I want to trust that. No, let's not do that. Let's trust something trustworthy. Trustworthy is something that's tied to God, which is his word. When our hearts and minds and consciences are washed with the word, then with practice, we will be able to exercise the discernment that we need for difficult circumstances that life inevitably brings to us. And by the way, you need discernment. You need discernment for every possible phase of life. I don't know. I've never met a Christian parent who says, I really don't need discernment. Very few Christians I've ever met that say they don't need that or rather not have it. The reason books sell on discernment is because it's important to us. <laughs> discernment is a critical skill to develop. And the psalmist here says, because God is so good, he's given us access to discernment in his word. Along the way, God has placed godly, discerning people in your path, in your life, that have had a lot of practice to help guide you, develop into that person of discernment, developing your discernment skills. There are those people who can help you down that path. I'm not saying that there are inherent sages walking around the church with flowing robes offering their discernment. I don't think there's any natural discernment Jedi in the church, but I do believe that God does gift some with wisdom and knowledge, but that comes, that wisdom and knowledge comes from a large intake of God's Word. No one's naturally gifted that way. It comes from a disciplined approach to Scripture. Prayer, study, intake, a washing of the soul, washing of the mind with the Word. Here are some examples of discernment that come from God's Word. And there are literally hundreds, but I'm just going to share with you three. Starting with the most basic and ending with something a little more complex. But the first example is this. The Word of God clearly communicates your need for God's forgiveness of sin. Have you discerned that yet? Have you discerned that you are a sinner and need God's grace? That you're a loss without Christ. Has that basic elementary discernment crossed your mind? Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have been offered hope from the God of the universe. Jesus' perfection is offered to you in exchange for your corruption. His death is offered in exchange for your death. He died so that you could live. Have you discerned this yet? This is one of the most basic truths of Scripture. Have you discerned it? With a little Bible reading, you'd be able to. 
Second example, if you want to be loved, you need to sacrificially love others. Have you discerned that yet? I wish people would love me. Well, here's some insight for you from the Word of God. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Have you discerned that yet? It's another basic item of discernment. But, you know, amazingly, some Christians who've been Christians for a while haven't figured that out yet. Spending time on the Word of God will give you that discernment. That you need to be the source of love and goodness and kindness to those around you. And it will make its way back. Have you discerned that yet? Thirdly, to grow in Christian maturity, you need mature Christians in your life. Have you discerned that yet? It's not very complicated, but it's more complicated than the basics of the gospel, isn't it? In order for you to grow into Christ's likeness, in order for you to become a discerning person, you need discerning person in your life. Do you have those companions? We talked about this last week at length. Do you have those companions in your life? I'm not talking about do you know people at church. I'm asking you if you have those godly, discerning companions that will help you become a discerning follower of Christ. The Bible reveals this. Have you discerned it yet? See, the, the more you live in Christ, the more you take in his word and surround yourselves with godly people, the more you will grow in discernment. You'll begin to learn the skill of filtering everything through the word of God. There will come a time when you may not be able to explain why something isn't right, but your discernment, your biblically trained discernment will, will notify you that something is off. So how do we get this good judgment and discernment? The, the psalmist here says, this is one of the evidences of, of God's goodness. How do I get it? Again, this stanza suggests to us that a combination of affliction, God's word, and that word working through godly people creates that reality in your life. You want to be a discerning person? You want to experience the, the goodness of God through his granting you discernment? Spend time in his word and with people who've been in his word. Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature. What kind of food? Solid food. Spiritually solid food. Biblical intake is for the mature. For those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Isn't that what discernment's about? Yes. Now let's conclude with this fifth evidence of God's goodness here in this Small stanza. Eight verses is all we've got here. And we see five different ways that God demonstrates his goodness to his people. The first is his discipline is purposeful. These things that you're going through are not just random. Secondly, his character controls his actions. Second, thirdly, his actions match his promises. Fourth, his word develops discernment. These all demonstrate God's goodness. And then in verse 72, he wraps up the stanza by saying his word is supremely valuable or is of supreme value. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 
Do you value the Word of God? Psalm 19, of course, is a parallel passage and speaks of the great worth of Scripture on this point. So if you would, would you turn over to Psalm 19? We're in 119, so 100 chapters to your left. Turn to Psalm 19, and you'll see an amazing chapter on the value of the Word of God, which the author of the Het stanza says proves the goodness of God. The goodness of God is seen in the value of His Scripture. Listen to what the Word of God does for those of us who will take it in. And see if this is not good on your chart, on your barometer. Verse 10, the parallel passage, More to be desired are they, that is the word of words of God, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So the psalmist, of, the psalmist author of 19 and 119 are saying the same thing. The word of God is more valuable than anything the world has to offer, including silver and gold. This is a good gift from God which you hold in your hands. The goodness of God is revealed all over the scriptures. Let me just read for you verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 119. Just these three verses. And remember the synonyms of the word of God are listed here for us. The law of the Lord is a synonym for the word of God. What is it? It's perfect. What's it do? It revives the soul. Do you need your soul revived? We all do. We're born in sin with a dead soul. The Word of God brings spiritual life. That sounds good to me. Second half of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord, another synonym for the Word of God, is sure it makes wise the simple. Are you a simpleton? We are. We are all simpletons to one degree or another. The Word of God, it says, brings wisdom that we need. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. And what do they do? They bring joy to the heart. I don't know about you, but I can handle more joy. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It helps me understand stuff. It gives me discernment. Verse 9, Psalm 19, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. It's not going to go out of style. It's here for good. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Friends, the Word of God is a good gift to His people. You and I need all the things I just read from Psalm 19. The author of 119 simply saying, yes, this is true. The goodness of God is on display in His Word for His people. The question is, do we take it in? You can have the greatest meal ever prepared by the greatest chef ever to live. And unless you eat the meal, you don't get no benefit. All right? You can sit there on the table all day. That's really a good meal. I know the chef. This is the same. This is the Word of God, and it, and it demonstrates God's goodness. It reveals, it proves, it gives evidence of God's goodness. Do you take it in? Does it wash your soul? Does it wash your mind? In our day and age when we're so easily distracted and, and led into you know, frivolous arguments about this, that, and the other thing, 
is, is the word of God our guiding principle? And this, this is so critically important. All of Psalm 119 is about the importance of the word of God in everyday life for the believer. This here, this stanza is simply saying, God is good and he reveals it to us in his word. Do you want to benefit from the goodness of God? Take in the word of God. Be in church. Be in our Sunday seminars. Be in a small group. Read and study the Bible throughout the week. Have it wash your soul. Have it wash your mind. Be committed to it. Let's pray and thank God for it. God, we are a grateful people. We learn of, of so many important truths in your word, not the least of which is your love for us. Not the least of which your solution for our sin in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw each and every one of us into a significant relationship with you based on your word. I ask that your spirit would draw us into the reading and study of your word, that we would avail ourselves to all the different avenues and outlets of, of the word of God to us today. I pray for those who do not have copies of the word of God, that you would be gracious and merciful to them, that we work hard at participating in providing them copies of the precious word. For us, Father, we have no excuse. We have multiple copies and different translations. I pray that you would help us to be more thoughtful, more diligent. That you would give us discernment as we read. That we would see your hand and your goodness on every page. Bless us, Father, as a church as we head into the summer months. Bless us as we desire to become more like Christ, a people that brings honor and glory to you. Help us to reach out with the goodness of God to our neighbors and our family and friends. We praise you for all this. Amen.